0: Yeah, what powerful words. Uh, Those are identity statements. We often identify ourselves by what we've done or what our role is, uh, and yet God gives us our identity. And uh, we are loved. That's who we are. What powerful words to begin this morning. Thank you, band. Uh, We are in Esther chapter four as we continue to look at this uh, project restoration as God was bringing his people uh, back out of captivity while some remained in uh, uh, into Persian uh, area. And we see that Esther is one of those as others have returned to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And these stories are kind of taking place at the same time in two different regions of the land. So we're going be jumping into chapter 4 of Esther, but before we do, I was uh, going through my calendar this year. Usually, I just look on my phone. You know, I've got all my schedules and dates and everything right here, but I had opened up my calendar on my computer, and it just gives me a little bit more information. I was going through the last year just amazed at how fast everything was scooting by. I mean, January feels like it was a month ago, and November 4th feels like it's three years away. Am I right? But as I was going through it, I saw on this date, October 4th, that it is the Feast of St. Francis Assisi. And so I, I didn't know that, that evidently I've got the Christian slash Catholic calendar going on in my computer calendar. And so uh, I, I've liked a lot of what I've known about St. Francis of Assisi, and so I was doing some reading on what this was. And, uh, and, and yeah, you can just kind of scroll through pictures of who he was and spend 30 seconds or whatever, uh, just some artwork throughout time. Uh, about him. And, uh, and he was known as the saint of ecology and of animals because of the time that he spent out in wilderness, but he didn't start off that way. He started out uh, being born into a wealthy family, actually. And uh, it was in the year 1181 that he was born, was wealthy, and had means, did a lot of partying when he was young. He got taught in swordsmanship because he wanted to one day become a knight. He didn't want to follow in the family business of of textiles, but he wanted to do his own thing, and the fame and the glory that would come along with being a knight. And so they went to war, and he would have his chance. He uh, entered and was a part of the cavalry and uh, fought in this war and ended up becoming a prisoner of war. And as he was in captivity for over a year, he became very sick. And finally, when he went home, he went home uh, awfully ill and weak. Uh, And he Probably went home because his rich father paid a ransom for uh, him as they had for a number of other wealthy children while the rest they just killed off. But as he returned home, he saw life a little differently. And he began to have a number of different occurrences uh, where he uh, saw the world different and he had experiences with God and became uh, a Christian. He started selling his earthly goods and giving them to the poor to the point that actually his father took him to court because he had sold some of the family's heirlooms and the father was wanting this money back and often those courts would take place within the church and so he gave the money back to his father he was able to 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 get donations to repay his dad and as he did he took off all of his clothes and he gave those to his father as well in essence estranging himself from his family for the rest of his life. And the the bishop at that time saw this take place and it's said that he took his own cloak and put it around Francis and sent him on his way into this new life of living in poverty and of living for other people. It's also said that as he left that day, uh, he was met along the road by a group of thieves who beat him badly and left him on the side of the road angry that he had nothing to give them because he had just given it all away. And uh, he gets up from this moment and is elated at the opportunity to suffer for Jesus and decides he's going to give the rest of his life. And soon many others started following Francis and uh, became Franciscans, you may have heard of this, and many of them were of the elite, they were other children of rich who gave up their, their wealth to give to the needy and the poor and to live their lives for Christ. And uh, it is a story that just is an encouragement of of somebody who can have life experiences and have everything going for them and then in a moment uh, of time understand their reality in the face of the cross. As Emmanuel said, we're all equal at the foot of the cross and that he saw himself not as better, not wanting to go after glory for himself as he did when he wanted to become a knight, but wanted to live for the glory of others. By the time of his death, there was more than 10,000 Franciscans, and uh, uh, this order of followers he was never seeking to have, and yet they were following after him. He was known as a saint even in his own days while he was alive, and then shortly after his death was canonized as a saint in 1226. Uh, and again, just what a story. And, and to, to look at his life, and so many are just verbal and, and audible stories that have been passed down to, to be an encouragement to us. And, you know, we're not big on necessarily following Catholic calendar and those kinds of things, but to remember a man like that on a day like this, uh, I think is worthwhile. I was encouraged by reading about him. And so here we have somebody else in a position of power, And so last week, we saw Esther, who has become queen after the original queen dishonored King Xerxes at one of his own parties, and she was shunned from the throne, and from that role, Queen Esther has come into this new role, and her cousin Mordecai, who had helped her get to this place, finds out about a plot that Haman, who was the right-hand man of King Xerxes, had to kill all of the Jews under Persian rule. So we pick it up right there in the beginning of chapter 4, where it says, and Mordecai, this is Esther's older cousin, Learned that he, what all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out in a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in every province where the king's command and his decree reached there was great mourning among the Jews." With fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, sackcloth and ashes are, are an uncomfortable, almost like bag-like garment made out of black goat's hair. Usually, that was very itchy. It was actually a a, uh, a uh, Oriental tradition that had traveled its way east. This isn't something that's commanded by God to be observed, and yet it was often recognized by God as a sign of repentance, as a sign of mourning, as a sign of humility. And so they were in this practice as the news of this decree of the the murder, upcoming murder of the Jews had reached their ears. And so this is what's happening. We see uh, people practicing sackcloth and ashes and mourning throughout scriptures. The Ninevites who were Gentiles did so. uh, When Jonah brought this message of repentance to them and, and they heard about God's anger, their king put on sackcloth and many of them did as well. King David, when he found out about Abner, his commander uh, had died in battle, put on sackcloth. He had a number of reasons uh, to mourn. You can read about that if you want. Um, and uh, King Hezekiah had as well. Even back in Daniel that we looked at in chapter 9, after he read out of the book of the law from, uh, from Jeremiah, uh, who Bob actually read from this morning, and, and he heard about the sins of his people, the reason that they were in captivity, mourned and put on sackcloth and sat in ashes as a sign before God of his own humility. And so we see this practice throughout Scripture. And and so here we have Mordecai and the other leaders in different cities doing the same. Verse 4, it says, when Esther... And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And so here we have Esther finding out about this. And and so one of a couple things is happening. Either Mordecai is making a fool of himself and therefore making a fool of Esther as well, or she knew that something was very wrong but she didn't know what it was. And so she sent clothes out to him knowing that he couldn't come into her presence dressed like that because he wouldn't be allowed to come in as we saw in the previous verses. And so she sent garments to cover himself with so that she, he could come to her and they could talk together but he refused them. And so this shows us another picture uh, of the royal bubble and, and how uh, ostracized from the rest of the world they would have been that Esther didn't even know about this decree that now news had reached to the furthest stretches of the Persian Empire. And we saw the same kind of a bubble in in chapter one when Queen Vashti was having one party and Xerxes was having a different party and this, this thing is happening separately from the rest of the people in Susa. Even take a look. At the end of chapter 3, as the decree had gone out, it says, This it says, King, the king, Xerxes, and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And so you can sense this royal bubble of not knowing what's happening out in the real world. And I think this can happen to us, right? Have you ever spent a week not watching the news? And you're like, Hold on, what's happening? Like every year when I get back from a week of camp, something big is going on and I don't know about it. I, I remember big news for middle schoolers was finding out Michael Jackson had died while at camp big Michael Jackson. Like, do you even know who Michael Jackson is? You're nine. Uh, but, uh, but it was big news. I, I actually was reading, I think, about Big Brother, who they live in this house, and uh, they're totally separated from news and the world. They actually didn't know that we were in a pandemic for weeks and weeks until the producers decided to tell them. And so it's a similar kind of, of information bubble that royalty sets in that news was not necessary getting to the queen. And so here she is pouring out uh, uh, the, the things at her disposal, a new set of clothes to bring Mordecai in to, uh, to comfort him and to find out what was going on. But he would not accept them, it says in verse 4. We continue in 5. Then Esther called to Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her And ordered him to go out to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And so he gets out there, this Hathach, and he gets the story. And in fact, he, hey, uh, um. Mordecai actually gives him a set of the orders so that he can return them to Esther. And he tells him the exact sum of money. Now, I think we can miss this. Uh, and it's an important thing that this was a large sum of money. 10,000 talents is what was going to be given from Haman to King Xerxes. This bribe, in essence, in order for him to be able to carry out whatever plans he wanted against the Jews. And it was a bribe large enough that Xerxes didn't concern himself with the details of the plan, only the money that was going to come into his treasury. So at that one talent, and he was promised 10,000 talents, but one talent is about 20 years of income for a skilled, let's say, construction worker in that time. And so this would have been 4 million years worth of pay. At a going rate today of, say, $70,000 for a construction worker with benefits and all that stuff, that would come out to $15 billion that he was bribing. The king with, in essence, uh, three quarters of our own GDP was what he was offering, and so I'm reading this, and I've read over it time and time again, and going, okay, he bribed him with a bunch of money, maybe more, or maybe Haman is independently wealthy, maybe he comes from a rich family, maybe he was from another land, and that's why Xerxes put him as second in charge, and, and so I was thinking about this, and then to think about fifteen billion dollars. Where would that come from? How would he get that kind of money? And so as I'm looking at this, I'm reading other uh, theologians and, and what they have to say about it. They figure this, that $15 billion is what he figured he could get by killing all the Jews and taking all of their money. And then paying off his own henchmen, keeping enough in his own pockets, and then the leftovers of $15 billion he would give to King Xerxes. So you see the intent and the evil in the heart of this man who is putting this plan into, into place. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went to Esther and told Esther what Mordecai had said." And so he wants her to go. He doesn't come into Esther to tell him her himself. He stays in the place that he was put. He understands that my role is out here as an example to the other Jews to be in an attitude of humility and of mourning and of repentance. And so I'm going to stay here, but Esther, you're in a different place. I plead with you to go to the king and talk to him yourself. Verse 10, it says, And Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these last 30 days. Over the last month, I haven't been called to come in. She's concerned. Even though this decree has gone out for for the, the Jewish people to be killed, she's worried about herself because while she seems safe inside of this bubble, nobody was safe if they walked into the king without being asked, not even the queen. Verse 14. If I can find it. There it is. For if you keep silent... No, I'm sorry. I'm going to read verse 12. Let's not skip anything. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to her, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief... And deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. These are some of the most famous words out of scripture, ones that are repeated over and over again. in Mordecai's plea to her, you're not going to be safe inside the royal bubble. This decree is eventually going to come after you too. Remember, she had not shared with the king uh, of her background and who her people were. And so he was unknowing at this point in time, and yet the law was the law, and there was no way around it. Mordecai knew that this was going to come and eventually make its way to Esther as well. Now, we've talked a couple of times about how the name of God is never mentioned in, in scripture, in, in the book of Esther, in these scriptures at all, anywhere. And what we see here is this, that their actions, as you look at the faith of Mordecai, it, it speaks so much more loudly than simple words would have. Did you hear what he said? He said, because deliverance will come from somewhere else. If you don't rise up to this moment, it's okay. Deliverance will come because he was standing on the previous promises of God to restore them to their land, to be their God, and that God, uh, they would be his people. And Mordecai had confidence in this. His faith is speaking so much louder than simple words would have. St. Francis of Assisi said this, It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless your walking is your preaching. I love that. It's no use of walking anywhere to preach unless your life and everything that you do in it, unless your actions back it more so than simply your words. And there's some contention over another quote uh, that is possibly from him, although maybe misquoted. Uh, but the same remains true of his life as well as the life of Esther, and it says, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. And I think Fred referred to that last week even. And this thought of we're preaching the gospel all the time. And yes, words are going to be required at some point in time, but our lives so much more do the preaching. And in the book of Esther, that's exactly what we see, their faith and their lives and their actions and decisions, preaching of a living father. Verse 15, and then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, And hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or a day. And I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to do. And so again, we see this faith that is extended as Mordecai gives this example that Esther rises up and she decides to take a lead of her own. And she gives orders to Mordecai, and she says, gather people and fast and pray. One of the other things, uh, actually, that we talked about, she doesn't say pray. In fact, it doesn't talk about prayer in the book of Esther either, and yet these two thoughts of fasting and prayer are never separated from each other within the Old Testament. They always went hand in hand. Again, not just about simply words, but about their actions, And so fasting is about giving up food for for a time. And in the absence of that food, when hunger pains come, when these cravings come, when something is longing inside of our body to be filled, it's a reminder that we should be longing for God in ways that only he can fill us, in ways that only he can sustain us. And so she asks them to feast along with her and her maidens, that they would sacrifice physically in order to be reminded over and over again to go to God. Have you ever told somebody, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you. And then like two weeks later, you're like, oh man, I never did that. Or even worse, you never think about it again. Like I'm guilty of that. Who's ever fast, hey, I'm going to fast for three days for you, and then forgot to pray. Not so much these pains and these hungers come up and remind us to go to God. And that's what this is for, this intentionality of uh, of giving up our our earthly and our human desires so that we can seek God and his spiritual desires. And that's what Esther is asking. Look, I'm going to go into the king but pray with me, fast with me, sacrifice with me and for me that I might have favor when I go into his presence. See, the king's decree is now law. It's the law of both the Medes and the Persians. It now applied to every man, woman, and child who dwelt within Persia. Everyone. You either were a Jew and you were going to suffer under this law or you were not a Jew but you were somewhat responsible by penalty of death for carrying it out. Sure, he would have had henchmen that did the actual killing, but it would have been your responsibility as a citizen to reveal where they were and to be a part of this. You only had one of two choices. Either you suffered under it or you helped to uphold this law. The effects of this decree were, in essence, a death sentence for everybody that met the criteria of the decree, and the only criteria was that you were born a Jew. How much does this still apply today? In Romans 3, chapter 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, every single one of us. Three chapters later, in chapter 6, it says that the wages or the payment of sin is death. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, it says that there must be shedding of blood to atone for sin. You see, but those first two verses have a part B. We read just part A. But part B is this, that not only have we sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, But the gift of God is eternal life. And so there's a second part of this. And the second part of of chapter 6 is that all are justified by God's grace, that we can have a relationship with him, not because of anything we did, but because of everything that he did. And this law now applies to every man, woman, and child under the rule of the king of kings you fall in one of two categories. Either you're a sinner who deserves death or you were a sinner, but you've received the free gift of life. And now it's your responsibility to spread the word and to help others understand that they can move from a sinner to somebody that's been covered by grace. This story of what's happening to the Israelites is the same story as what we live in today, that people are destined for death. The king has made a decree, and yet we know the end of this story anyway, that he has found a different way by sending his own son to the cross that we can live with him. While praying in the ruined church of San Diamano in the countryside of Italy, St. Francis heard the words from heaven that said, Francis, rebuild my church which you see falling down. And he started picking up bricks. And day after day was physically rebuilding this church. But Francis would come to understand that God wasn't simply talking about this building, but he was talking about Francis rebuilding the church spreading the good news of this grace as given so freely to everybody especially to the poor who couldn't uh, who could relate so much more than even the rich which is why he had to hand down his riches and put them aside in order to bring this gospel of good news to to those who were longing for it this project restoration that we're talking about is all the same thing, and I was just, uh, I was just laughing out loud as I'm reading this story of, Fr- of St. Francis this week, accidentally coming across it in my calendar and reading these words, Francis, rebuild my church, which you see falling down. This is the call I think we are being brought into, to rebuild the church to be there for people in a way that's sacrificial to ourselves, to bring this message everywhere we walk, and yet not just to walk it out, but to talk it out as well, to share in our words with our stories of how good God has been to us. It doesn't mean that you have to know all the answers. It just means that you have to tell about the difference he's made in your life. So I look at these verses, and I have to ask myself, who do I relate most to? Mordecai, the patriarch, feeling the weight of this death sentence on all of the people that he would call his family, standing not just for himself but for his people out in the courtyards in sackcloth and ashes? Or do I relate more to Xerxes and Haman, who are up in the upper room safe and sheltered, drinking the night away while the town is in confusion and chaos? Do I relate more to Hathach, the one carrying a very important message? Not a message of their own, not one that they originated and yet responsible for a message that could give life to others, or Esther, who is just learning about a decree. Maybe you're just learning about Jesus. And the goodness that he gives to us and that he wants to invite you into his family. Are you like Esther who is just beginning to learn about this and now is feeling the responsibility? Do I take this to others? Do I take chances? Because it's going to be risky to go out and to go to others. And and you may be shunned from friend groups and you might be mocked and there are risks that go along with it. Then what is my space? Mordecai knew where his place was out in the city streets, and yet Esther's place was in, the, t- in, in uh, the kingdom, inside of the castle, inside of the royal bubble. Where is your place? What roles do you play? Are you a mother or a father or a mother or father figure? Or are you somebody that leads a team? Are you a friend? Are you a coworker? What are your spaces? Where has God placed you for such a time? And then when will your time come? I want to read these words again for Mordecai, but slightly differently. It says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. But who knows whether or not you have come here to Florence for such a time as this. How are you called to act? God's deliverance will come from one way or another. Are you going to be a part of the blessing or are you going to be separated from it? And so I asked a question a few weeks ago, uh, which was this, who is your one? Who is your one person that you are praying for, that you are talking with? Who is one person in your life that you don't know where they stand with Jesus? Or maybe you do know where they stand and it's not in a relationship with Jesus. Who is that person? And I want you to be thinking and praying. In fact, I want to challenge us all this week to be fasting. Pick a day. Pick a day to give up food, to give up. If if you're diabetic, don't do that. Don't. Like, it's okay. Eat, please. Have an orange juice. Uh, Give up something else that you're going to feel that's going to hurt, that you're going to feel the churnings of, and every time you feel that, come back to God. Maybe you know who that one person is, but maybe you don't. Even better fast and ask God, God, who is the one person that you have put me in the right place at this right time to be sharing my life with, to be sharing your message with. Help me to walk this walk. There's no point in walking to preach unless your walking does your preaching. And I want to end with this, these words from uh, J. Vernon McGee. And he said, Esther's decision to go before the king is a very brave act. But beloved, there is one more noble He vaulted the battlements of heaven, came down to earth, and took upon himself our human flesh. He did not say, if I perish, I perish. He says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. God, I thank you for your goodness, for your grace, your mercy. God, for your deliverance. Uh, from ourselves. God, from the decisions we've made, from the places that we've put ourselves that we deserve death, and yet you so freely give the gift of eternal life. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to feel the weight of that message. God, the privilege of being able to take that into the places and spaces that you've put us. God, with a unique message to individuals that nobody else is poised uh, to talk to, God, to share with in that way. God, help us to be uh, revealed this week who we should be uh, just sharing our lives with. God, the direction that you're leading us. God, and I thank you that you include us in your plan when we don't deserve it. God, when we haven't done anything to prove ourselves worthy and yet you bring us in anyway. God, we worship you and you alone this morning. Amen. Amen.